From Small Data Industries, this is Art and Obsolescence. I'm your host, Ben Finaradin, and on this show, I chat with people that are shaping the past, present, and future of art and technology. This week on the show, I'm chatting with a very special conservator. My name is Christine Frunert. I'm a conservator of contemporary art and more specifically specializing in time-based media art. Christina has been passionately working in time-based media art since the late 90s, and when she immigrated to the U.S. in 2005, she became the first time-based media art conservator in the U.S. who really had training specifically in this stuff, because back then there weren't training programs for it in the U.S. Not only was Christina pioneering time-based media conservation practice, but she would later go on to teach at NYU, and with her colleagues there, established the first time-based media specialization within an art conservation program. And we heard from one of the first students of this program in episode 17 with Sasha Arden. Now, I don't mean to overplay the importance of these firsts. As we'll hear from Christina herself in today's chat, the work of learning in time-based media conservation is quite simply perpetual. There's always new challenges emerging, and to be a time-based media conservator requires a passion for constant learning and collaboration. Now, a lot of you tuning in are new here, and this might be the first episode you're hearing where we're speaking with a conservator. So I thought, who better to give us a basic introduction to what time-based media conservators do than an educator like Christina. So before we really get started, here's Christina's concise crash course to ease us into the work of time-based media conservation. Time-based media art refers to artworks that have a durational element that unfolds to the viewer over time and is mediated through technology such as film, slide, video, software, the internet, or even performance. So as time-based media conservators, we are often really diving into research to understand those works and the work defining properties as Pip Lawrenson coined it. An analogy that I like to use for my students is Imagine you receive a loan request for a painting or sculpture. So what you usually do as a conservator is you walk into your gallery or into your storage facility and with visual examination, you will probably be able to tell if the work is in a stable enough condition to be sent out on loan. Imagine you receive a loan request for an ambitious video wall. You will walk into your storage facility and you will open boxes with playback equipment, with media, with cables and with monitors without putting it together and without performing it, you know nothing about the work. And that is really the key difference that the works in our care need to be performed to be shown, but also need to be performed so we can actively conserve them and can also perform risk assessment and conservation treatments moving forward. What a phenomenal summarization. I'm going to send that to my parents and maybe they'll understand what I do now. Now, with all of that laid as a foundation, let's dive into Christina's story. And as usual, we'll start from the beginning. I grew up in um, the most uninteresting and unimportant part of Germany, I would say. I remember myself sitting in art classes and I know that my classmates were able to capture something quickly in a drawing and they did it brilliantly. And I was sitting there and, you know, scrabbling around and it took me hours and hours and hours and I couldn't really create something great. So I think my art teacher noticed that I was patient enough to copy something. I was patient enough to go into the techniques, but that 
there was not much creativity in me. So he recommended that I should maybe check out uh, a local museum and see if I can intern with them. And I did. So I was interning with a local museum after school and got to know the different departments in that almost slightly encyclopedic museum. So I started off in the archaeology department, cleaning and scrapping broken parts of ceramics and putting accession numbers on bones. I was working in the book binding departments and so was learning how to bind books. And then I ended up working with the paintings conservator for a while and that really created my interest to become a conservator so in a way I was really grateful for this advice by my art teacher at the time because right after high school I was really committed that this is going to be my profession of choice. So I became a traditionally trained paintings and sculpture conservator first and technically I got employed after finishing my training in 1992 at the Weyraf-Richers Museum slash Museum Ludwig first. And this was technically two museums that were covering a wide range of artworks and many, many centuries of artworks. So the Weyraf-Richers Museum holds a collection of um, artworks from the 13th century to the 19th century and the Museum Ludwig's a collection for modern and contemporary art 20 and 21st century grew out of the Vaira Frichets Museum as a department of modern art first. But due to the fact that the collection was growing so fast and Mr. and Mrs. Ludwig were supporting the museum so much with so many, many important loans like the Picasso collection, the Russian avant-garde collection, but also uh, the pop art collection and the media collection, which was fast growing in the late 80s and 90s. The museum somewhat grew out of their location that was home for both institutions. And with a donation of of 80 Picassos in the mid-late 90s, a condition was attached that the Weyraf Richards Museum will move out into a newly built location and the museum will become entirely available for the Museum Ludwig. And it was at that point of time that also the conservation department were split into two departments, one serving the Weyraf Richards Museum and the other one serving the Museum Ludwig. And at that point in time I became head of conservation at the Museum Ludwig because I already had a very obvious interest more in modern and contemporary art other than uh, traditional art but at that point in time I didn't have uh, formal training in time-based media conservation so I found myself standing in front of the Brandenburg Gate video installation that is composed of 215 CRTs by Namjoon Pike and I was scratching my head a lot and asking myself how could my skill set potentially translate into the care of those works. I was traveling with an artwork, Soundings by Robert Rauschenberg, also from 1968. This is a light kinetic installation that was also conceived by Experiments in Art and Technology, the artist and engineer collaboration. So uh, Soundings is a 30 feet wide installation, about three feet deep and about seven feet high. And it consists of plexi panels and the front panel is mirrored. The 
panels behind show silk screens, black and white silk screens of chairs in different angles. On top of the piece are eight microphones. Behind the work are light bulbs and there's a control unit. So if you walk into the room with sounding silently, it's usually shown in the dark room, you will see nothing but the mirrored image of yourself. If you start clapping your hands, if you start singing, if you start making any noise, talking, the microphones picking up the audio intake of the human voice, splitting it into four frequency bands, and then activating individual light bulbs from behind, which is basically illuminating the piece from behind. But the key factor here is the work is sensitive to different ranges of the human voice. So different voices will activate different visual impressions. So the artwork is literally talking to you. And when I was installing the piece during the Rauschenberg retrospective in New York in 97, prior to be a media conservator in, in those days, I realized that a simple miswiring can entirely destroy the sensitiveness of the piece. And this is a moment in time when I realized that, wow, there's a strong need to conserve these works. And of course, they did come with very, very little documentation in those days. I just realized if there is no specialty focusing it in conservation, there will be an entire category of media artworks. There will be centuries that are potentially lost of cultural heritage. And that was a moment in time when I turned around and decided, no, there are many paintings and sculpture conservators in the world. I have to become a media conservator and I have to really spend my life saving those works. And this is when I got excited and learned about the program that became available in Bern in Switzerland for the conservation of modern materials and media, the first of its kind really in the world. And so I went there and graduated from there. And ever since, this is what I do. Wow. What was that program like at the time that you went? It was you early days of the program. So I was in the third class that entered the newly founded program. It was certainly pioneering at that point in time, but also, of course, with, and now I know it <laughs> myself, establishing a new program, it really takes a village. So I give huge credit to those who pioneered it and who identified the need early on. The program was founded in 1998, really in the early days of media art and it was run by very dedicated individuals and still is by uh, Dr. Stefan Wilfert, who's a conservation scientist and the head of the school. And in those days when I was there, uh, Johannes Gefeller was a professor for media arts. But it's important to mention that the program was really focusing on both modern materials and media. And this was based on the fact that now, let's face it, in the early days of analog media, what were analog media made of? Synthetic organic polymers. So it came in handy to have some basic knowledge on plastics and their degradation and their conservation and treatments paths. So classes were really centered around both modern materials and media. In those days, as you can imagine, of course, we were very much focusing on analog media at the time. And the lab was slowly 
developing. The school already had a strength in uh, the natural science. So the lab for um, instrumental analysis was fully developed, but the labs for media conservation were still under development. And that was uh, a blessing in a way too, because students were also really involved in building those facilities. And I again want to give the professors huge credit for pioneering this program and building it. And I think they have done really amazing uh, work over there and still do so. The classes were delivered in modules, and I think they still are. And modules mean that you were focusing on one subject for an entire week, let's say electric and electronic components in contemporary art. So you were taking classes, you had hands-on workshops for an entire week, and then there was an exam at the end of the week. So you were really focusing on one subject over the course of the week. And then you were collecting those credits over time by completing those modules that were necessary to gain a solid foundation of both the conservation uh, of modern materials as well as media art. I was fortunate enough that the Museum Ludwig gave me a leave in order to complete that program. So I was still somewhat holding down that position and went back and forth between Bern and Cologne. And since they were teaching in modules, I was able to do so. But again, the museum gave me a leave for an extended period of time in order to do so. My main motivation to come to CS was basically for personal reasons. It was a really crazy decision because I felt like I probably had one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting jobs in Germany at that time. So uh, it was a really, really tough decision to let that go. But again, the museum even gave me another three-year leave in order to do so. So it really left a door open for me to return I, I can't tell you how grateful I am <laughs> to that um, institution. They have been really, really flexible. They really supported me. They really understood that I was driven by the idea of media conservation and I had to turn to it and really had to devote my, my energy to it. So, yeah, the director of the museum saw the opportunity that I could really expand my newly acquired knowledge that I gained in Bern and apply it in one of the most vibrant and interesting uh, cities when it comes to contemporary art. So they supported the idea that I will uh, leave for three years, which was a timeline that was basically fixed by the visa that you receive as a foreigner. So I wasn't certain at that time if I will stay permanently since this was really dependent on the visa conditions in those days. So we agreed on the fact that the museum let me go for three years and then it was probably the hardest part in my entire professional life when I had to signs or resignation letter and I decided to stay here in the US, even though I didn't really fully find my way in those early days. The job market wasn't really established. There was no time-based media position. So I was um, working with a conservator in private practice at that time who was dedicated to expand in that field, but that didn't happen, which was nobody's fault, really. 
there was one major influence in those days, and that was working with the Electronic Media Group of the American Institute for Conservation. The Electronic Media Group, or short EMG, is a specialty group within the American Institute for Conservation. And the American Institute for Conservation is our umbrella organization for art conservators. And I believe roughly consists of 3,000 500 conservator within um, the U.S. And the Electronic Media Group was formed as an interest group first in the late 90s before it formally became a specialty group. And the pioneers in the U.S. who envisioned this new specialty as a strong need within our profession were really Paul Messier, who also was instrumental in turning the subject of the general session of the annual meeting of the um, American Institute for Conservation in Philadelphia in 2000 into the subject of electronic media art. He, together with Mona Jimenez, also organized the pioneering symposium Tech Archaeology, which was held at SFMOMA at the occasion of an exhibition by the media collectors Kramlich. And so this conference was attended by 25 invited guests who were closely examining the media artworks on view. And that really set the basis for building the blocks and the conceptual framework of what time-based media as a specialty later developed. So that really created the interest in the U.S. to launch a new specialty. And interestingly enough, simultaneously around 2000, the same happened in Germany. I remember myself sitting in uh, the VDR, which is short for Verband der Restauratoren or Organization for Conservatives in, in Germany during a meeting for the Modern Art Specialty Group, which was just launched some years before. And there was the discussion around the fact that we also really needed a new specialty for media arts, which was also launched around that time. So I would say it was really in the late 90s, very early 2000s, when the need for a new specialty was identified. So I became chair of the Electronic um, Media Group, I think in 2008, and was um, serving for two terms. And that was really my forum to apply my interest and my passion, but also to see this newly formed membership of, I think in those days, maybe like 20 to 50 people, and all of them came from adjacent fields, since there was, as we know, no formal training in time-based media conservation, etc. Time. So those were really the early days when you attended an AIC meeting and there were like 15 or 20 people in the room joining the electronic media group and there were like three talks. So it was a really small but a fast emerging group. The membership was also extremely dedicated and they were eager to receive continuing education. So they were asking for training, of course. And I thought in those days that, yes, since there is no formal training available at that time, so of course it should be the professional organizations who should fill the gap and, and provide that. And so I was fortunate 
enough to be surrounded by extremely dedicated and active uh, board members in those days. And this is when the conference series Tech Focus was launched. Were you having the opportunity to work on time-based media art in the context of your day job at, at what was the name of the private practice where you were? It was called Kremner Art Group. I was working a little bit on media art, but again, the specialty wasn't really established and not known that much in those days. But I clearly remember working on Send for TV at that time. I remember working on a work like Heart Beats Dust, which is an interactive artwork by John Dupuis and was actually the winning entry of a competition that the pioneering organization EAT Experiments in Art and Technology launched in 1968, that early. And you probably know the publication of the exhibition The Machine that was organized by Pontus Hulten at MoMA. So Pontus Hulten invited the collaboration of artists and engineers, EAT, Experiments in Art and Technology, to create a competition and invite artists and engineers to submit proposals for artworks. And we are in the timeline of 1968 here. So it was really the early days of artists collaborating with engineers and getting excited about including technology to their palette. So the curator had reserved one room to show these new submissions of artworks. And they got an overwhelming response of 250 submissions. And they were all so creative and inspiring that they decided to show those works in a different institution. In those days, you could probably still make this happen on short notice to find facilities to do so. So another exhibition was launched, um, some more beginnings in the Brooklyn Museum. So this is a long way to circle back to uh, the fact that Heartbeats Dust by Jean Dupuis was the winning entry of this competition. And I was fortunate enough to work on it and learn about it when I was approached by a gallerist who wanted to curate a show centered around media art, or in those days we were using the term electronic media. So he told me about this artwork and he told me about the fact that he was advised by engineers that it should probably migrate it to something digital. And this was a moment when I decided, um, you know what, I don't think that's a good idea and I'm going to help you out here. Heart Meets Dust is an artwork that is basically built into a tall black pedestal. So imagine um, a black pedestal that is about seven feet high, about 30 by 30 inches in square. The top of the pedestal has a vitrine, so there's a window opening. And on top of the pedestal is a theater light that creates a cone of light, which is visible to the viewer through the window opening. On the bottom of the window opening is a red pigment that is little rubin pigment, which is known for its very low specific weight and for its ability to stay sustained in the air. Under the pigment is a rubber membrane. Under the rubber membrane is a speaker. The speaker is connected to an amplifier. The amplifier is connected to an electronic stethoscope. The visitor places the electronic stethoscope 
on your heart and your heartbeat is amplified, creating the rubber membrane to vibrate due to the interaction of the amplitude with the speaker. And this, in result, throws the pigment into the cone of light. Heart beats dust. It's a pretty beautiful work. And again, it was created and conceived in 1968. So really in the early innocent days of the marriage and the intersection of art and technology. As such, there was no documentation about the work. So when I first examined it in a sub-basement on Broadway, I identified all the components. And when connecting the components, I wasn't able to create a clear um, audio signal. And it took a while to figure out what happened, beside um, the fact that over the time the literal red um, pigment was getting a little bit clunky due to exposure to high humidity, so it lost this ability to really uh, sustain in the air. So I was looking into sources to find new dry little rubin pigment, but uh, more importantly, there was no clear audio intake that could be created with the equipment that was still available and that clearly looked original. So it took me a while to look into the frequency that our heart is producing, which is actually operating between 50 and 450 hertz. A commercially available amplifier is operating between 20 and 20,000 hertz. So it became obvious that some preamplification must have been uh, necessary. So I looked up the make and model of the electronic stethoscope and was searching for contemporary preamplifiers that were used with those electronic stethoscopes. And it showed up, believe it or not, in an online auction and I was able to purchase it and once connected to the work I was able to create a clear audio intake and with the now added little rubin uh, pigment I could also really create the motion that was necessary to have the pigment being sustained in the cone of light. I also was fortunate enough to uh, meet the artist afterwards who was very very pleased with the treatment and then a film crew came to New York to document his lifetime achievements and his oeuvre. And of course, Hartbeast Dust was part of it. And so we both were, well, discussing the treatment and also Jean Dupree talked about the creation of the piece in front of the installed work. And so we both used our heart to activate it. That is such an incredible story, especially because this is such an archetypical time-based media conservation treatment story. <laughs> One of the unique things about our field is that you have these cases where, you know, somebody brings the piece to you and it can seem as though, oh, well, you know, it just came right out of the box and here I have the instructions and here I have the equipment, but there can very easily just be like a piece of equipment that went missing and it was never documented in the instructions. So it doesn't work and it's not clear why. And so, after Heartbeat Dust, eventually you go into private practice and you start your own company with your partner, Reinhard Beck. Where did you and Reinhardt meet and what really inspired you both to uh, mm -hmm. go into private practice? Mm -hmm. 
It's funny that you're asking where we met because we can't remember. <laughs> we believe it was in southern Germany. It's a Vitra Design Museum that was a location where conferences on the subject of the conservation of modern materials were organized in those days. So we believe it was there, but we both can't really put our finger down and really determine it date and location where we met. However, our profession, especially in Germany, was really small. So everybody working in contemporary art really knew each other in those days. So Reinhard was working as a fellow. He's an expert in kinetic art at MoMA in 2008. And he also decided to come to the U.S. for personal reasons. And so we identified that we have complementing skill sets, given that he's also an objects conservator and media conservator by training. And I came from this paintings background. So between the two of us, we can really cover a variety of materials that are comprised of different materials and technologies. So we also were aware that at that point in time, we didn't know of any private practice really specializing in time-based media art. So we decided, even though we both didn't have a private practice and weren't quite experienced in uh, terms of entrepreneurship, we decided to join forces and really focus at what we called um, the conservation of technology-based art. We were somewhat overwhelmed in the early days because immediately we got so many requests from a lot of museums, uh, a lot of private collectors, but also artists. So we clearly saw that there was a need for time-based media conservation. The majority of our clients were um, museums who didn't have dedicated media conservators in those days, as well as collectors in need for time-based media conservation, and also artists who turn to us and artist foundations. Still, we are working with a lot of artists who also consult with us to look into materials and technologies and their sustainability before they really use it as an active material to create their artwork. So this was probably a little bit different from most of our colleagues who mainly receive artworks, conserve them, and then they send them back onto the world. So with our clients, we really work with them on a more permanent basis. So most of our clients, we have established a working relationship over a long, long period of time, because as you very well know, when time-based media artworks will not survive if only treated once, they need constant care and attention. So therefore, it works well for our clients and us to establish this long-term relationship to sustainably care for their collections. So around the same time that you and Reinhardt started your private practice, you also started teaching mm -hmm. at NYU, and this has really developed over the years. You and your colleagues have now started the first ever in the U.S. conservation program with time-based media as a specialization. I'm curious if you could tell us a bit about the program and you know how that came to be and, and what mm -hmm. the program is like. 
I started teaching at the Conservation Center NYU in 10, so I was organizing courses around the subject of first contemporary art and then modern materials and time-based um, media art. And in 2016, thanks to the uh, W. Mellon Foundation, we were able to uh, submit a grant to outline a planning phase to establish a new curriculum for time-based media art conservation at the Conservation Center Institute of Fine Arts, New York University. So the planning grant was received in uh, 2016 and really enabled us to look at the status quo of time-based media art conservation internationally. So it enabled us to travel to the few existing programs worldwide, but also to visit established time-based media conservation departments worldwide and to discuss with our peers and our colleagues how a time-based media conservation program program could become part of the larger curriculum of conservation education at the Conservation Center. So we were fortunate to have this two-year planning phase where we were working with a working group and a group of advisors to identify the skill sets that are needed to become a fully rounded conservator, specializing in time-based media art, but also having acquired knowledge in material science, instrumental analysis, and other disciplines that are required to become a fully rounded conservator of contemporary art. So over the years, we discussed how the skill sets that were identified can best be translated into the building blocks of teaching and if they can be best taught in a lecture setting, in a seminar setting, in a hands-on workshop, or if they can be best acquired during internships. And so we built this curriculum with our advisors around the existing curriculum, but we're also able to establish additional opportunities as are just to the lectures and seminars that the students are taking at the center. So we were also fortunate enough to offer workshops and public lecture series that are open to both our dear fellow time-based media colleagues, but also to our body of students. And we like this format where where our fellow colleagues are basically learning alongside our students because this is providing an opportunity where students can get to know their peers early on and our colleagues bring in real-world scenarios in that uh, learning environment. So over the years, we have developed this curriculum, which was launched officially in 2018. And our first graduate graduated in earlier this year, Taylor Healy. And we usually accept about two students per year. So it's a really small program, which is highly, highly flexible and can also respond to the interests of students to a certain degree, which is a really nice quality of the Conservation Center as a whole, because it offers the opportunity to take elective courses. It offers the opportunities to take individualized instruction. So if you have, for example, an expressed interest in performances, you are encouraged to pursue this interest and the Conservation Center will try to match you with an instructor who can supervise your project. 
um, also unique to this program, at least in the US, is that students receive a dual degree. So students receive an MA in art history and an MS in conservation science. That's the reason why it's a four-year program. But they are really come out as both art historians and have received fully rounded conservation training, including the science. Within the Timeless Media program at the Conservation Center, we also really have seen that students come in with varying interest and some of them have broader interest to not entirely focus on time-based media but also maybe photography or objects conservation and so we allow this to happen we even encourage it since when you work with ambitious installations you may face other materials under your care so it really is beneficial to have a broader knowledge in material science and instrumental analyzers and inorganic and organic materials as a whole. However, so now that we are approaching the fourth year of the establishment of the curriculum, now is the time to look at it and review it and see where modifications um, need to be applied to see what we really liked as deliverables for the curriculum and where we can even build on that strength. So now is really a good time to take a step back and review what has been um, established in the next four years. And it's a little early to talk about it, but we are planning to do so in late spring in order to discuss this with a wider audience, but also to have our students present and give them a voice how they have developed over time and where they are now going within uh, the newly established field. So it's really also going to be a forum for even pre-program students and emerging professionals, graduates, as well as established conservators in the field. So we are planning to review this on a larger scale. Stay tuned. <laughs> will be announced soonish. With regard to the other programs and their FOCI, the MIA program, the Moving Image Archiving and Preservation Program under the umbrella of the New York University, also has done pioneer work without <laughs> a question and really also has strongly served the library and archives field, but also the art field over time. And without them, I don't know where we would be. So a MIA program has really, really identified needs early on and has trained a very, very, very skilled and wonderful professionals and colleagues who also work on our field. And I think it needs all of us. And it's good to see that there are more educational opportunities. I also want to mention the programs abroad that have narrowed their foci over time, like in Bern, work that has been carried out there over the last 20 years already is really amazing. And they will also take a moment to look at and revisit the last 20 years to see how the field as a whole has evolved and shaped and how this has translated into education. So that's all to say that it came a long way, but it's nice to see from the early days when we were really uncertain how to 
grasp and form the field that there have been a lot of activities, approaches, conferences, educational opportunities, and now even degrees that have served the field thanks to so, so many dedicated and pioneering colleagues. Working with students who come from different backgrounds is something that I highly enjoy, but it's also equally challenging, I would say. The class that I'm teaching is a foundation class for time-based media art where I encourage students from literally every graduate program within NYU to join. So this is based on the fact that our field is so highly collaborative, and I would like this to start at day one. And I also feel like since our field is so new, we can only benefit from those individuals who come in with different skill sets and different backgrounds. Because let's face it, this is when innovation can happen when you group people with with different perspectives. So I encourage students from other disciplines. And so far, we have had engineering students. We, of course, have art and history students, museum studies, art administration. But I would love to see more students from uh, computer science, more students from the engineering field and other fields in uh, the graduate studies. Since we are all surrounded by media, we are all have different skills that are contribute to media. We all use it on a daily basis. So having a dialogue with students from different backgrounds is really one of the most enjoyable, but also challenging tasks within education. Seeing students developing and then landing fellowships and permanent positions is probably one of the most rewarding aspects. So... Christina Ferner, what is coming next for you? That is a good question. I, I would like to know myself. <laughs> Certainly the pandemic had made me think about what I would like to do next and where I want to bundle my activities and where I would like to focus on this Maybe potentially silly, but I'm going to mention it anyway. I'm also slightly transitioning during the week from art conservation to environmental conservation during the weekend. I'm not going to leave the field, but I sometimes think about what is the most pressing tasks surrounding our world. And I can't really fully isolate myself from the pressing issues that are centered around environmental conservation. Not that I have the skill set or the training that I can contribute to it, but I'm engaging in a local project on a little island where I live uh, in Long Island Sound, where we're trying to reestablish the natural oysters in order to build natural oyster reefs but also to reintroduce oysters in the local waters to clean the waters. So every oyster filters about 50 gallons of water. And this has been a really rewarding activity during the weekends to engage with the community and to learn about your immediate surrounding and getting to know your immediate surrounding. So you find me at six in the morning on a boat circumnavigating the island and performing water quality measurements with my uh, dear fellow project members. And so we're really building knowledge about our immediate environment 
independence that has been extremely meaningful to me. Again, I'm not going to leave the field, but I'm just expanding my horizon a little bit and see a huge value in engaging with your community. And if we look at our lives and our challenges that we are facing, I think it's also really important to engage in education in terms of environmental conservation. And in a way, our project is probably really most important to engage with the local kids in the community to make sure that the mess that we have created as a generation is hopefully going to be improved in this future. Oh my gosh, I love that. Is there any advice that you would like to give for somebody who's interested in becoming a time-based media conservator? Mm -hmm. Well, I I guess being curious and staying flexible and being interested in lifetime learning is certainly something that comes as a huge plus. As new technologies are developed as we speak and artists will always be ahead of us before we can even think about developing concepts, how to preserve them. It's really engaging and is really inspiring. And again, it's uh, centered around constant learning. So if you are interested to become a conservator of contemporary art or more specifically time-based media art, hopefully this will appeal to you. Also, besides the hard skills that you will learn, equally important is for the future time-based media conservator that they have very strong soft skills and very strong communicators as you will work in a highly collaborative environment and have to communicate with different individuals from other fields of engineering, of computer science, or a neon technician, an AV engineer. So we certainly can have the knowledge all by ourselves. So we are highly, highly dependent on this collaborative spirit that also makes our community so wonderful. It's really a community of sharing It is a very, very, very rewarding profession. So if you're open-minded, if you're curious, if you want to dive into really ambitious research questions, and if you're not afraid of also performing very detailed and ambitious documentation, the field is for you. (laughs) Well, Christina Ferner, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you, dear listener, for joining me for this week's conversation with Christina Froner. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider supporting the show by heading on over to artandobsolescence.com slash donate, where you can make a tax-deductible donation through the New York Foundation for the Arts. If you're not in a place to donate, I hope you'll consider leaving a review. It really helps other people discover the show. And a hot tip, if you are a Spotify listener, they just rolled out ratings, so you can leave us a review there. And as always, if you want to keep the conversation going on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at Art Obsolescence. Thanks again so much for listening, friends. My name is Ben Fino Radden, and this has been Art and Obsolescence.